take me back when I was a kid. Never had to worry about what I did. But I'm a man now. What's the plan now? Gotta get it done. No time for fun now. Take me back. Mike Young here, another episode of Stories That Need To Be Told. We are post-Thanksgiving dinner. We are in the middle of the holiday season, basically. We had Thanksgiving. It was great. We had 30 people here. How do you feel like it went, Ma? It went great. It was fun. Talking to the mic, Mom. I'm with my mom. We're in the house. We're in the kitchen. She just did 45 cardio, 3.5 miles an hour on the (laughs) treadmill for an hour while I was at Starbucks writing. Right? Yes, I did. I did a great job. <laughs> I'm happy to be walking, period. She is happy to be walking. You are happy to be walking. Thank, I know. Thank God. Count the blessings. I am. I do every day. That is the truth. Yeah. My mom is uh, one of those people who has a strong will to keep it pushing, right? It's been, what, five years since you had six. the stroke? Six, six years. Six and a half, My mom and a half years. Had, yeah, six and a half years ago. The phone rang. Hold on. Let's see who this could be. Who is it? Who was it? Can you you figure out how to turn that off? Huh? Just hit deny. Here, I got it. I got it. I got it. Just deny. Who's Sheila Weinbaum? By the way, if you ever want, if your phone rings, Ma, and you want to just shut, stop it, just hit that button on the side. It'll shut it down. Um, Six and a half years ago, you had the stroke. Right. We were up in Charlevoix. Yep. It was heavy duty. In my favorite place of all. Isn't that ironic? That is very crazy. From you, nothing. Talking to the mic. Talking into the mic. <laughs> you, she, my mom has a tendency to forget that a microphone. It's from. It's one of the things from the stroke that happened. She forgets <laughs> that the mic is in her hand when it's in her hand. But uh, yeah, six and a half years ago, up in Charlevoix, our favorite place on the planet Earth. Where we have a summer home for thirty some years, right? Right, thirty-five years. Yeah, we uh, you had a you had a a stroke. It was weird because yeah, because right? I was perfectly fine. And we had breakfast, and we were going to go meet at the boat. And the next thing I knew, I was in an ambulance going to the hospital. Was that literally the next thing you remembered from the moment that it happened, or do you remember when you it happened in a in a in pharmacy? A, in a pharmacy, you were going to send a package. Right. And, and the pharmacist noticed that I wasn't speaking clearly. And he said, you're not feeling well. And I said, no, I'm perfectly fine. And the next thing I know, he said, I'm calling 911. I'm like, why are you calling 911? That's what I thought I said to him. But what you said was, I feel I'm up on a hill, fine, <laughs> side, wide. I have no idea what I said to him. And the next thing I know, he had called 911, and they took me to the um, Petoskey Hospital. Well, no. First, you went to the Charlevoix Hospital, local, for about thirty seconds. Right. Well, no, we were there for you know a couple hours, obviously, because they did, we didn't know to get you to Petoskey right away. So, so she goes. I'm. I was with Cameron, my nephew, jogging, and we saw the ambul an ambulance pass us with no sound or lights on or anything like that, and the ambulance just passed us. And ever since, you know, ever since I was little, I've been a a neurotic Jew. I've just been neurotic (laughs) my whole life. It's in my DNA. I can't help it. But when you and Dad would go out and leave me babysitting as a kid, 
you know, I don't know if I ever told you this, but like I, when I would hear an ambulance out there, yeah, I would just thought, and I'd be babysitting Rob. I'd automatically think, oh God, it's my parents could be, they're never coming home, you know. Just that's pretty uh, funny because when you kids turned sixteen and were driving cars, every time I heard an ambulance going down uh, the road, I thought, uh oh, what's happening? How are the boys? Where are they? Yeah, so we're just a worrisome family, except for Dad, who <laughs> we're was all asleep. Nuts. Dad, my dad, my dad would be sleeping at nine o'clock at night. He just he knew we were fine. He just had no <laughs> worry about it. But the ambulance passed us, and then we got home. And right when I got home. I was in my room getting my shoes off, whatever, and Rob answered the phone. And, you know, Rob goes right into panic mode when he hears anything. And we got a call at the house from the hospital. And it was, and Rob goes, let's go. We got to go to the hospital. And you were at Charlevoix Hospital, like three blocks from where we live. Right. And we got over there. And you, you look, you know, it was so weird about a stroke, at least this stroke. You, you know, you looked fine. Right. You were almost like laughing as to like, what the hell happened? You right. almost like were like... What happened? Like you were, your mood wasn't, you weren't scared when we saw you. You were like, what happened, Robert? I'm like, I'm Michael. You're like, well, I don't know yeah. your phone number. It was, it was one of the scariest moments right, of all of our not lives. I remember remembering your phone number or Rab's phone number. And I'm like, I wondered how they're going to get a hold of you kids. Cause I didn't, I had no clue. Yeah. You know? And when uh, when the stroke when the stroke hit you, you didn't even it just it was like literally nothing. There was no pain. No. There was nothing. There was not. You literally just thought you were having a regular conversation, and you wired. And now why are you in an ambulance? Do you remember being in the ambulance on the way to Charlevoix? Uh huh. Yeah. And were you thinking, what the hell happened? Like I feel fine. Were right. Th- like kind of yeah. thinking like that. It was scary because I've never been in an ambulance, obviously before, and. Um yeah, I mean, I would never in a million years thought I would have a stroke. Yeah, you know, I walked every day five miles and and was in good shape. Yep, and whatever. But unfortunately, un- unbeknownst to me, I had a fib, which you don't know unless something you have an episode in a doctor's office or it shows up in a doctor's office. You, I probably have had it my whole life, but I never knew what it was. But it's very hereditary in our family. Right. Both of our uncles have it. Atrial, a, my atrial. Grand, my fib, dad had it. Yeah, AFib, atrial fibrillation, where your heart doesn't beat exactly on point, and sometimes blood coagulates in the heart area, and then can shoot. Uh, it can shoot uh, a, clot, a, clot. a clot, and that's they basically determine that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And you I know, I was very fortunate that I was in the drugstore, and the pharmacist was so aware of what was going on in fact when i felt better um like the next summer i went in to see him and to thank him for saving my life he goes oh i didn't save your life you'd have been fine i said no if i would have been out on the boat by myself or walking on a trail which i normally did god knows what would have happened right Right, he did save your life. I mean, you know, it's so funny because Charlevoix is such a small community of people who everybody knows everybody. It's right. a one street town, so that was that was a nice thing about it. And then Rob and I get to the hospital, and you're dazed. You know, you're kind of dazed and you're kind of out of it, but you're in a good mood. And uh, and I remember they were. You know, we called Uncle Sam right away. Like, you know, I, I have an uncle. You know, my uncle Sam. It's like. 
I don't really feel like going to drinks with him, and you don't really want to spend a lot of time at dinner with him. And he's a, he can be a pain in the ass, but we love him, and he's the first phone call that our family makes because he's just got that boss attitude, and he takes shit into control. So Sam was like, get her the fuck out of that hospital in Charlevoix and get her to Petoskey. So we got to we got to the hospital, and you were speaking sort of clearly, but you weren't really making sense. It wasn't like you were jumbling your words. You just didn't know what was going on. Right. Like they would show you, you know, they showed you a picture of, you know, something and you didn't know what it was. Right. It, it, it was really, it was super surreal. Rob and I went into full caretaker mode. Like, let's figure this shit out immediately. Got you to Petoskey, a much better hospital. Got you situated over there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Petoskey... I remember they started showing you pictures of like trees and people and like oh, really? a hammock. I don't even remember that. Yeah, so like they would, sh- you know, they're like testing how much, you know, what's going on in your brain, and you couldn't tell, you couldn't say what a hammock was. They kept showing you like a picture of a hammock in between trees, really? and you're like, chalkboard, <laughs> really, grass, baby. You couldn't come up with hammock, even though hammock's not like a normal everyday word. But they were running you through all like the brain tests. Right. And they determined I didn't have one. Yeah, they determined (laughs) you were like the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. And we were going to figure out how to get your brain back. But it was absolutely one of the. It's so interesting because if you, you know, if you thought about. God forbid what would happen if one of your relatives or a loved one had a stroke. In your mind, when you're playing out the thought of the fantasy, you think, this is going to be the worst thing of all time. I could never, ha-. you know, you always see people go, I could never handle anything like that. You can but handle then, a lot more than you think you can handle. And our family knows that. You, Believe me. You can handle almost everything that you are dealt. Right. You know, every, in some way or the other, you know, whether it's mental, physical, or death in the family, whatever it is. Right. You're, you so, have to. You have to stand up and get going. Yeah. You realize how resilient human beings really right. are if they put their mind to it. Some people, you know, you, you, yeah, you, you had a real stroke. This was not right. a minor stroke. This no. was a real stroke. No, because I had no feeling in my right side for a long time. I couldn't remember numbers. I remember that. I couldn't remember. Um, you couldn't do your checkbook? Nothing. I couldn't do my checkbook, which was crazy because I always wrote every check forever for 50 years i did my checkbooks and i couldn't remember how to write the number seven i remember that explicitly and um it was crazy just just the things that your mind forgets but then with a lot of work (coughs) it all comes back in time it is and it takes time right and so you know we rob and i you know me and my brother we just went into like we went into help mode. We just went into a mode. I just, in my brain, I just, I turned off Los Angeles. I turned off work. I turned off whatever. And we just went into rehab mode. And my mom literally went from, you were in, you know, first you're in a wheelchair, you know, trying to get your feeling back in your right leg. Then you made it, to, then you're on a walker, you right. know, then you're on the walker doing rehab at the, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such an interesting thing because people at the rehab center, they were great. You know, but they do this every single day right. for years and years. So, like, they don't have, like, an emotional connection all the time. Right. So, you know, you're looking, you're watching your mom go through rehab, and you're watching these people who are kind of, like, a little robotic, you know, and you're thinking, like, you better put some love into this mm-hmm. rehab. You better put some feeling into this. But they were fantastic. I mean. Beaumont's every- rehab department, headed by Ronnie 
Taylor. Yeah. I can't say enough about them. Yeah. I mean, they have a program and they put you on it. Unbelievable. And, and, and yeah, and, it's, and they are putting you through a real program and it's yeah. with your physical and it's with your mental. Mm-hmm. And they had your physical going every day, you know, where you're literally in the gym there. Oh, yeah. And it was three hours every day. No joke. Yeah. And you had to bust through it like mm-hmm. an Olympic athlete. <clears throat> and she was... um yeah, and you were unbelievable. I mean, and your spirits, like, your spirits quickly, you know, you, we had one bad meltdown when we came home just because, you know, we were on the walker. You were still on the walker at home. And so me and my brother and my mom were, were, were home one day, and she was on the walker, and you just had a moment where you thought, God forbid, maybe you're never getting better than that moment. Mm-hmm. But, but every day you were getting better. Every right. day she was getting better. And my brother and I are both – you know, we're going to, we could be personal trainers, basically. <laughs> we basically put you through extra shit that was going on. Right. You know, we had like exercise balls in the house. We had weights in the house. Me and my brother. I still have them. Yeah. And me and my, everything. yeah. And we were making her do weird shit because <laughs> the one thing I went, I went right to the library or to a bookstore and I got like, I got this one book called The Brain That Changes Itself. And the other book was Stroke of Insight. Right. So we read the book Stroke of Insight that was written by a doctor who had a stroke. Right. Took her eight years to recover. Took her, yeah, nine years to fully recover to where she felt fully recovered. Right. But she was able to document her whole stroke. And that was a super helpful book because you went, you know, you were going through the whole chain of events that she was going through. Right. But, but, uh, but the rehab process was. And look, we we had good spirits. Like once we knew you were okay and they got you, you know, look, it took a long time. They had you on a ton of medication. Right. The medication was bothering you. You know, you don't like you don't like being on medication. No, don't like that stuff. So for the first year and a half, two years, you're on all these different pills. One is a blood thinner to make sure you don't have a stroke again, you know, and one is, you know, they got all kinds right. of shit going on. You know, they're trying to regulate your your blood, your weight, your your brain all kinds of wild shit so basically but basically what we did was we just went into rehab mode and my mom was like rocky balboa (laughs) she literally we had her doing boxing moves remember like we had we we were making you dance right you know when you could barely move your right leg right you know we were making you throw punches with your right hand when you could barely move your right hand right no i know it was great and And i appreciate it believe me big time because some people's kids would have left me at the hospital. <laughs> no, you can't. You couldn't just leave you at the hospital. But it was a it was a, a heavy time. But cut to six and a half years later, and boom, you're talking, you're walking, you're moving, and yeah, I'm doing fine. you're on the treadmill, you're driving, which you were never a great driver anyway. So like any <laughs> of the, any of the driving stuff, it's like I know you're scared to drive down. You know she doesn't like to drive that much, but that's just more out of fear of. Just driving? No, I don't mind driving if I know where I'm going. I don't like to drive in a neighborhood where I'm not sure of myself. But why should I? They they have Uber. That's why they have Uber. I would take my mom to the parking lots around town and make her do a driving test. And, I mean, look, it, that is true. You you know, driving's never been your greatest asset. But What is my look, greatest asset? I'm not sure what your, it is. Your outlook on life, your attitude... The way you are with younger people, like people, like my friends, like people, you love youth. Right. You know what I mean? You have always been great with kids, teaching. Right. You know, my mom's taught. You know, we talked about this, but it didn't get it. We didn't get it on the podcast because we lost it. But 
My mom taught 25 years of public school, Southfield High Public School, at a time when, and she taught, you taught special ed. Right. And it was at a time when, if you were a bad kid, you went into special ed. They weren't like breaking you down into like ADD, this, right? No. I mean, you, any problem you had, you were just going to your class basically. So no, you had, there were kids with learning disabilities. There were kids who had emotional problems. There were several different kinds of kids, but it, um, it was very interesting and it was a lot of fun. I mean, I had a lot of great kids who, um, some of the kids who had learning disabilities, they just had certain disabilities, but they were not problem kids. You know, they grew up to be doctors and lawyers and, and everything and do real well. A couple of them, however, were not so good. <laughs> you know, they were a little bit delinquent and a couple of them wound up in uh, the prison system every once in a while, but that's the way it goes. I mean, it was a very diverse situation and it was great. I mean, I loved every minute of it. Yeah. And the worse the kid, the better I liked them. My mom loves a bad kid. <laughs> and me and Rob, we went through our own bad phases, but nothing like some of the kids you had. Oh, I mean, no. you know, let's just be, we could be real because my mom had kids that ended up being drug king, you know, kids of the drug kingpins in Detroit. Right. You had. You know, kids of whatever Motown artists. You had kids that ended up as drug dealers themselves who went to prison. Right. You know, you had one kid who was packing a gun in class and got arrested right after. Yeah, came to our classroom with a, I'll never forget, he had a blue revolver in his jacket. And he happened to be a nice kid. And I don't know what the hell was on his mind, but the police officer went and walked up the stairs and walked up behind him. And took the gun out of his pocket, and that was the end of him. And then, unfortunately, that kid passed away like the next year from something totally unrelated. He wound up having um, epilepsy, and he died in his sleep, actually. Oh, I thought you were talking about the kid that was a hitman for oh, no, the Detroit gangs. That kid that killed all those people? Yeah. Yeah, well, he, he was just up, an animal. Right, right. He ended up dead in prison. They, didn't yeah. they kill him in prison or before he went? So. No, I think he died in prison. Right, so my mom is teaching a class, and in the class is a known assassin, basically. He was a known hitman, you know, for one of the drug gangs in Detroit. And Detroit had Young Boys Incorporated, which was one of the largest, you know, youth drug gangs. Like, you hear songs by, like, you hear rap songs now, and I know everybody's got their, like, stories, and, you know, but let's just say, you know the song, Big Meech, Larry Hoover. Big Meech and his family, they're from Detroit. So they started in Detroit before they ever went out to Atlanta and became super large drug kingpins with, you know, a record label. And the roots of all that shit were coming out of here. And oddly enough, my mom was teaching a lot of these kids. And the funniest thing to mm. me, my favorite thing, this is this this exemplifies how cool my mom is. Even though we battle and you're not that cool all the time. But this I'm is how cool. you cool because I let you live this long. Yeah. And there was times I should not have been allowed to live. But the coolest thing about my mom is I would literally be 23 years old, 22, coming back from college for a summer. And I'd be like any, I'd be in a club with my friends. And I would see like a kid from the hood with a fur coat and a gold <laughs> rope. No joke. Drug dealer. You know, he's doing what he's doing. And I would see him and I'd be like, yo, what's going on today? He's like, yo, 
How's your mom, man? Yo, we, I, I'd love to have lunch with you. Yo, you, you got to tell your mom I said what up, man. You, you know, all the kids, as bad as they were, always wanted to, like, check in and see how my mom was. And that, I think, is the testament, you know, to you as a teacher and, like, guiding these kids. Because you, you loved them, but you didn't yeah. take shit. No, I did not take any nonsense from them. And they appreciated it, I think, because they knew I liked them. And, you know... And not a lot of people, most people were afraid of them. I was never afraid of them. No, my mom would, and I remember being nervous for you sometimes because you're like, I told him don't talk that jive in my class. And I was like, yo, mom, maybe you don't use it, you know, that term. You know, maybe you don't have to, don't talk that ghetto shit in my class. Tyrone, you don't tell me how to talk. You know, you would, you work hardcore with them, but they loved you. Even though, you know, look, you were firm in your belief system. That's right. Growing up. Almost, I don't want to say nerd, but like, remember when you ratted out Jimmy Hoyer? <laughs> remember? Yeah. <laughs> so one of my- I would do it again tomorrow. No, you wouldn't. Yes, I would. No, you wouldn't. Oh, Not that. $100, put it on the table. No, you wouldn't. I, Me and my boys growing up, I had a crew and we were, you know, we were a scrappy crew and, you know, one of my friends was- Smoking pot through in his life, whatever. He wasn't smoking pot all day. Like he wasn't, in my opinion, he wasn't doing anything any other kid in high school no, was doing. No, but he just did it in front of me, which is the wrong move to make. Anyway, basically, I had to when go through a phase 15. of school where my mom narked out one of my friends to his mom, and it threw a wrench in all my, in my like six of my friendships. For like a year, then they weren't really good friends. No, 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 my, you, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. get it. You, you, don't you think you don't have to be a narc like that for like? You, if, you, you don't if have to. My son came to class, stoned out of his tree, and I once with, or and twice. I, and if I worked with his mom, or his mom worked with me, I would have hoped that she said, "Hey, Gail, you know this is going on in the classroom. Keep the mic in your talk to the mic." So that's what happened. I worked next next to his mom in a classroom and she and I are friends to this day and even her son talks to me because he knows <laughs> this is this is 27 right. 28 well, years now ago he's married and got kids of his own oh call cuz of you not ratting because him of me, but it was an interesting situation it's a it's an interesting dynamic and i'm sure some people out there have parents that are teachers you know, my mom taught at my ri- – that was my rival high school. So there was always the looming threat that you were going to come work at my school. And I did after yeah. you graduated. But my, but you almost came the year I was a senior, and I just right. was adamant. I couldn't I couldn't deal with it. But I came the year Robert was there, the next year after you graduated. I came there in 87, and I remember Robert saying to me, Mom, don't talk to me in the halls. And I said, okay, I respect that. I won't talk to you in the halls. Every frickin' day at lunchtime, he would come in late with his dumb friends <laughs> for passes. They would always come for passes every five minutes. I said, why? You told me not to talk to you. I'm trying real hard not to. Keep yourself out of my off, uh, out of my way. I don't have to give you a pass. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's so funny when you look. I truly, like, I'm not a horoscope believer or I really don't follow all that shit, but 
sometimes I think about the difference between personalities of the years that we graduated. So, like, I look at me and my friends. Absolute delinquents, no doubt. The people I was hanging out with were definitely troublemakers. Some of them, yeah. Some of them. I had great friends, too, who were good kids who are now doctors and lawyers. and We all have that. Even the delinquents became doctors and lawyers. <laughs> Some of them did. Some right. of them continued on the path to delinquency. But my point is is that me and my friends, we, could, we were like smart hoods. Like We never got caught doing anything. My brother and his crew of friends, Dumbest every dumber. dummy dumbs. Every week they got caught doing something. Every year, like I'll never forget freshman year, or no, Rob's about to become a freshman in college. We're all excited. I'm home. It's the summertime. I'm going to bring my brother to University of Arizona. He's a stud. He's going to love it out there. He's super excited. I got my buddy Zach from college, mm-hmm. my, my first college roommate, best friend. He's home. We're having a great summer. Rob comes in. He's packed. All his things are packed. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget. And dad walks in with a bag of marijuana that he found on his passenger seat or in the console in the open in his car. And he's like, who the hell shit is this? And it's I tried to take the rap for it because I was scared for, my, for Rob. And it was Rob's. It was my brother's. He left a bag of marijuana on the console of my dad's 300ZX, his favorite car, his only sports car. Mm-hmm. And my brother just got busted. And I remember you and dad, this is, you're not going to college. We're not sending you to Arizona. Does your brother need rehab? I remember you were like, this, your brother's got a problem. Put him in rehab. He was telling me it wasn't his, it, he had it for a friend. You know, like Did he I was say whose it was? Yeah, he did, but I don't even remember. Probably like, said it really? was Matt. But yeah. Rob, my brother, Robert and his, got caught for everything. Yeah, my brother and his boys could not get away with anything. Even as far as like throwing a snowball at a car, they would get caught by the guy driving the car. They just had no sense. And so, like, I never, I always wanted to protect Rob from like, I never wanted him like coming out with me and my friend. You know, I was always weird about him as a tag along when we were little. But even in high school when my friends were doing, you know, rougher things or whatever, I didn't want him coming along, even though he tried to still tag along. He just didn't have somehow the street sense of, like, not getting caught. He know? always got caught. That is a fact of life. Yeah. It's almost when, like when he wanted to get caught. When 696 was being built and you kids would go down there and play at night, you know, sometimes you go down there and um, Robert would come home with all these lights from the freeway. You know, all those construction, <laughs> those yellow construction lights that they put them on the barrels? Yeah. Robert must have had 40 of them in his bedroom. Yeah. They're building a freeway. He's out collecting construction lights <laughs> from construction zones. But, you know, we, uh, I always say, like, if you're, if, 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 you're, if you're lucky enough to make it out of high school, you know what <laughs> I mean? For all the crazy shit, you know, life is like, it's like sections. You know, if you can make it out of the dangerous, delinquent, dumb-minded shit where your brain's not developed in high school, boom. Then you can get through into college. You know, if God forbid, you know, if you don't get into a, a drunk driving situation in college and you make it through college, boom, you could be okay in life. You know, and we've, uh, you know, look, we've we've lost people in all those sections. That's right, unfortunately. You know, from an early age, from an early age, we... Uh, you know, we had a kids think they're invincible, and you really do think you're invincible. I know. Like some when I when I go back, when you think about your mentality in high school, it's really stupid. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. like I look at my nephews and I just tell them, 
all the all the shit you're thinking about, it's just dumb. You know, like don't do anything. Right. Like I don't even want them to know I did anything wrong. You know, even though they're going to go through their own phase. Right. But it's like you go back to your brain and what you were thinking is in a in a high you school. Were thinking a lot you of literally times. were not thinking. Right. You know, until we had like our first death in the family. That was that that woke me up to like, oh wait a minute, you don't live forever. You know what I mean? I don't even think it was that. I think when one of your friends was in a, he wasn't caught. He didn't cause it, but he was in that horrible accident with where two sisters were killed and the two boys were badly, badly injured. Yep. And he, to this day, is in a, he has a closed head injury. Here was a kid who was going to Michigan, University of Michigan, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, things happen like that, and I think that wakes you up, and you can say, this, God forbid, could have been me. That was a tremendous wake-up call. Yeah, one of our best friends, Mike Altman, was I'll never forget that he was in a car riding with friends and they got into a head-on collision and two sisters died in the car crash and the driver and Mike survived and the driver I forgot his name nice guy I forgot his name really nice guy he uh had just had an eye injury and Mike got a closed head injury and it changed his life forever and it changed all of us and I remember I mean, we you know before that was Mark Fisher, you right. know that was that was Mark Fisher. Was even before that. I I had a friend who was a race car driver. He was a, a go kart racer, but a serious one on his way into like, you know, the, what you do before you go into Formula Four cars. And I remember I came home one day and you said Mark Fisher was in an accident. And I remember thinking, okay, you know, I watch television. Everybody who's young and gets an accident comes through it. And I remember you said, oh, Mark Fisher's in a coma. And I remember thinking, my I remember my exact thought is, oh, everybody on television comes out of a coma, so he's gonna be okay. And then, boom, my one of our best friends, Mark Fisher, died in a car in a go kart accident. It's like, where the hell? Like did... 14, 13, 14. No, years no, old. he was 15 years old. Oh. He was 15. We we're going into ninth grade. We we're going into ninth grade, and he was like, just like the coolest. You know, he was like our age, but he seemed older because he like did all these. He traveled the country racing go karts. Right. His family was a racing family. They owned a, a gas station. And I was at. Remember, I was at his house the week the the weekend he right. left. Right. And we were we were revving up his go kart. You know, like we were tuning it up with his family in the garage. And that was like the first that 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 fucked me up bad, because. They had an open casket for a 15-year-old. I know. I took you to the funeral home. And me, Eddie Rubin, our whole crew were there, and we didn't know what we were... We didn't think about that. We didn't know we were going to go see I our friend. I remember taking you guys, and I remember talking to the funeral funeral director, and I asked him, I said, you know, these kids have never been in a situation like this. And he happened to be a really nice man, and he sat down with you guys. I don't know if you remember that. I do. But he sat down and talked to you about, you know, what's going to happen, what you're going to see, what's going on. Yeah, that was a bad situation. Do you remember? Remember, I couldn't sleep for like a month. Remember, I was shaking like it was I, terrible because I, I had the vision, which I still have, and it's thirty some years later, whatever it is. But I still have the vision of you know you see your friend in a casket, right. and he didn't look like himself because uh, you know he's dead, but he also didn't look like himself because he was you know swollen from a head injury. It was tragic. So the theme of <laughs> our childhood. Was irony, but uh, but it was tragedy, 
right? I mean, we had tragedy after there tragedy. Was tragedy, but, but yeah, the irony was also. that was the irony of the way you raised us. Me and my brother, my family, my cousins, we had the greatest time you could ever have as kids. Like just. If you were lucky enough to grow up with a, in a big family and like a lot of ethnic groups like Jews or Italians, you know, Chaldeans. black Chaldeans, you get to grow up around your relatives. And it's like you just it's like you just you have poor people fun. You know what I mean? <laughs> you didn't need to be on a vacation. I had as much fun literally in our we cousins. Vacations. We didn't vac- we didn't have any money. We right. weren't going anywhere. But my point is, is that we had as much fun in a backyard of a relative's picnic as anybody could have told me that they had anywhere on the planet Earth. I don't give a shit where you were on vacation. Me, my 13 first cousins, <laughs> and my brother, and my uncles and aunts and all that. We just had a blast. We did. We did. I mean, I remember it was like every every picnic was fun. Every picnic was a softball game, and like I remember watching Dad and like the fell all the guys play football, and right. you know they were like still playing like kind of hardcore flag football, you know, but still great, right? Good, and and Michael, you think about this. They were younger than you are today. Yeah, I know. Thanks. <laughs> It's true. They had full lives. Right. They were full young. lives. They were much younger than you were. Yeah. Dad was thirty. Yeah. When they were playing football in the field at Shanels. Right. Or Thompson Middle School, and me and all of my cousins, we all we just wanted to get in the game. Exactly. You know. But my our whole childhood, and this is a this is, you know, this is, you guys did the best thing ever. I mean, you raised us the, with the most fun. And family that you could ever have. And yeah. it's like... I mean, how many kids have the Southfield Athletic Club as their family room? Right. <laughs> I knew I knew growing up we had something special going on. But I couldn't verbalize it or like think of... I, I couldn't put it into... I couldn't get clarity on it. But I knew as a kid we were like around something special. You know, and, and I've kind of... I've talked about this before, I think on the podcast, like that my dad... I've never talked about it, obviously, with my mom, but... You know, my dad ran the Southfield Athletic Club. It is a famous club in Detroit, in Southfield, Michigan, on the twelve, on eleven and twelve and Evergreen, eleven, eleven and Evergreen in the Travelers Tower building. And this is a true thing. I'll just say it out loud. The day Jimmy Hoffa disappeared in 1975, every gangster's alibi was that they were working out at the Southfield Athletic Club, and they were. And my dad, what would you call dad's title there? Attendant. No, no, he was like the athletic director. He taught racquetball. He ran the back. He ran the athletic department. Right. He ran. He made sure. He re, he ran the de- athletic <laughs> department. So basically, my dad was a phenomenal athlete. All right. He was a state racquetball champion, but he was also a great trusted guy. So when the gangsters wanted to have a meeting and they needed an office, my dad made sure they had an office. He also made sure the towels were, were in the right place. <laughs> He also made sure the restaurant was shut down when it had to be shut down. He also taught racquetball to, you know, judges if they wanted right. to take a lesson. You know, if a judge wanted a racquetball lesson, dad gave it to him. If a gangster needed an office, dad gave it to him. If the restaurant was, he made sure the restaurant was flowing. And, I mean, you had to be sitting back going, even though women were only allowed once a month on Sundays. Right. Correct. Yeah. Women, well, women were were not even allowed in the back. Actually, we could go there for um, for meals. You could go there for lunch and dinner. 
Right. But you couldn't work out in the place at all. Right. I mean, every once in a while, Dad and I and some friends would open it up at night when it was closed, you know, and we'd have friends come over and we'd, you know, we'd uh, play racquetball or swim or whatever. And we did a couple parties back there for the members and their wives or girlfriends or whatever they were bringing in. <laughs> God knows what that was. I mean, this is a legendary spot where, I mean, my it was a legendary spot. Yes, it's it a was. famous place. I mean, you had prof- all the fight, you know, you had the Kronk boxing guys that would be there. The Tommy Hearns, Emmanuel Stewart, who was the world-class trainer. He belonged there. Mike Lucci from the Detroit right. Lions, I remember. He was good friends with Dad. And my dad's, one of my dad's best friends was Al Kaline. Right. Hall of Fame, one of the greatest baseball players on the planet Earth. Probably I called one of the nicest human beings on the planet. Literally one of the most humble, sweetest, nicest, most awesome guys, you know. And I remember growing up, we called him Uncle Al. He would, you know, he always called dad. He always wanted to play racquetball with dad. And I remember going to his house, you know, he had like the two tigers, you know, little tiger statues yeah. in front of his house. And Al Kaline to this day is a legend and has been working in the Tiger organization for all these years. But I just remember thinking, like, my dad is so cool. Like, he like he was just so cool. I remember well, feeling kids, cool. kids grew up knowing all these athletes. And it was, um, it was a treat because they were really nice, nice men, you know, and it, w- it was nice. Yeah, I mean, and I, and, and I knew growing up that we had some extra special shit going on because I remember – me and Rob were like, I remember telling stories at school. And I remember thinking to myself, I feel like I'm lying. Like, I feel like I'm making these stories up and that kids are not going to believe my stories. Because when a, you know, you're it's in fifth grade. because that's how Ian feels. That's why he doesn't tell people about the movies and whatever. Right. I, I, my nephew is in my movie and like he, doesn't, I, he comes over last week with like a girl that, he, that he's friends with. And she has no idea. He's never... Excuse me. She's an actress. Like she wants to be an actress. So I just in the car I just said, Yo, Ian, did you tell her that you were in the movie? She's like, What? What are you talking? He never told anybody at his school that he was in a movie. So that's just the humble young gene <laughs> that I didn't have apparently because I was bragging to everybody about everything. There was a week when I thought Elvis was coming. Remember? Yep. Sheldon had the limo service. Right, right. So our cousin, who now is a you know he's a billionaire, owns a Belfour, one of the biggest companies on the planet. But anyway, he owned a limo company, and we heard through my dad, through Freddie, my dad's best friend Freddie Lorenz, rest in peace, Freddie. We talked about him on a podcast, but Freddie was the doctor to all the entertainers that came through town. So he was a local celebrity with reach far beyond Detroit. And he told us, he said, oh, I'll get Sheldon to bring Elvis to your house. Well, you tell that to a kid in fourth grade, he's going to tell everybody on the street. So that Rob and I, we went around and we were telling all the neighbors that Elvis was coming over. Surprised you didn't sell tickets. I was trying to sell tickets. We were on the, we were on the grind. Obviously, Elvis did not come over. No, but Chicago came over. Yeah, the group Chicago, and I'm sure a lot of you guys out there, you know, you know Chicago, Legends. They've only sold 300 million records probably. But as a kid, my dad taught the group Chicago racquetball. Because when they'd come to town, they'd go to Freddie. They loved racquetball. My dad would teach them. At the, and they'd play at the Southwood Athletic Club. And boom, all of a sudden, there's Pete Cetera laying out in the sun <laughs> with our family. And he was the lead singer of Chicago. And Bobby, what was his name? Bobby, Bobby Lamb. Lamb. 
yeah, like he, I think he was a keyboardist or guitarist. And all of a sudden, these guys are like around us. And we're in Detroit. We didn't grow up in L.A. No. This is no Hollywood bullshit. You know what I mean? We had like the cool Detroit celebrity factor, which I kind of think, you know, I kind of, I mean, we got off subject. We were, I don't know. We went from tragedy to all this, but, but I think it has an effect on like my life in L.A. Like, so I get to L.A. and I'm not enamored with celebrity because my dad was a celebrity. Basically, in my mind, right, right, right. Like in my mind, my dad, you know, let's be real. Dad's funeral, there was fifteen hundred people. I mean, it was standing room only funeral. We had police escorts on the way to the cemetery, and right. So you can call yourself a celebrity all you want, but to me, that was like that was the testament, you know, a testament to you know we're we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not. Gonna, <laughs> My mom's an easy crier. We're not going to cry on the podcast. That's not what this is about. I just wanted to give a, I just wanted to say, you know, growing up, we were just fortunate, fortunate kids. And, you know, because of my dad, because of dad, we got to meet so many of these people. And nice, nice people. You know? And to this day, I mean, if, to this day, I think if I need a, needed somebody around i could call any one of those people that daddy was friends with and they'd be there for you and your brother for sure 100 percent. to this day when i come back to detroit i could be anywhere i'll like be at a restaurant somewhere and like an old you know like somebody in their 70s will come up and you know who knows you and it always comes back to like your father was the greatest guy i'm sitting at I went to dinner, you know, I went and met Asaki. I went and met him and yeah. Har- Har- uh, the, uh, Harold Freed, who's a criminal right. attorney here. He represents, he used to represent all the biggest, you know, all the gangsters, all the bikers. He's, you know, he's a big time criminal attorney, big time. And I didn't even know he knew dad. Mm-hmm. And I sit down at this dinner and it's with one of my friends who was, he was in prison for seven years and he's out now you know, trying to get in different businesses. <laughs> anyway, we have dinner. Wonderful. It's me, a, a, me, a f- ex-con, and two attorneys. And the attorney, Harold, who is a big-time criminal attorney, the first thing he says to me, before, right when I sit down, can I just tell you, your father was the greatest guy. I said, because he looks a little young. Like, he kind of looks younger because he's got a shaved head. But I said, uh, oh, I, did, I didn't know you knew. He said, of course I knew your father. He's like, Itzy and I are good friends, you know. I knew your father. I used to play racquetball at the Southfield Athletic Club. And it was just like, oh, yeah. once you, you know, once you know somebody on that level, like once they give props to your dad and to your family and to your mom, then it's like the conversation just becomes anything you need, <laughs> just you're calm. in, you know. Right. And it really is like that. Like life is like that. Like relationships – Depending on how, you know, depending on how deep your relationships go, you can, there are favors that if you ever, God forbid, need, you have people in high places that will, you know, help you out. will help you out. And hopefully you don't need them. Right. Hopefully I don't need a criminal attorney, which I don't. But I just, th- <coughs> I just thought it was a, a great testament to you and dad and to the way you raised Rob and I, you know, and we, we, we tried. No, we keep that with us because believe me, I could have had a way easier life 
if I stayed home with dad back in the day and maybe stayed in the scrap, I don't mean an easier life. I mean, like I decided to go into a business that is like up in the air and it's up and down and it's, you know, right. you struggle for years before you finally make yeah, it. But you wanted to do your dream, you know, totally. But I'm saying the scrap business was fun for me at the time. It wasn't like I hated the scrap business. Well, yeah, because you were making a living at it. Daddy was making a living at it. No, you but I'm mean? S- you didn't have to make a living at it. So for you. It was like a fun thing to do with your dad. Right. I was driving at 15, at 16 years old, I could drive a dump truck. I literally was driving the dump truck in the scrapyard with dad. I loved it. I actually loved it. So you're right. For me, for my position. It was a kibitz. It was great. I go with my dad to the scrapyard and at the yard is, you know, the scrap business is a rough business. So you go to the yard, there's like, you know, three dudes that are in the outlaw biker gang <laughs> who in the daytime shovel scrap at the yard and they just work it and they love dad. You know, and every year dad would have to take all those guys out, you know, and just like make sure they had fun. On new, right. I forgot what he would take them on Christmas, I think. It was like their thing. Right. Remember, where, like, was it Christmas or New Year's he would take them? Christmas. Christmas, Christmas. Anyway, it was like the most fun thing to me was like just you put on the gloves you know, you go to the scrapyard and I was like shoveling brass and copper coiling and steel into the back of my dad's, you know, dump truck. He really just had a dump truck. And I remember thinking like, you know, dad wasn't like a, a mechanic, a fixer, a fixer guy. He couldn't, wasn't mechanical. Yes. He, he couldn't c- fix all the, uh- he couldn't fix anything. Right. My dad could not. He could barely screw a nail in a wall. Right. But for Spud, he could drive the shit out of a high-low. You know, because my dad would have to, you know, we'd get to the scrapyard at 5 o'clock in the morning, and he would hustle the barrels of brass into the back of the thing. I remember, like, just being so impressed with my dad, just working the high-low, the pit, you know, the, the, the fork, the forklift. Um, but yeah, you're right. I, I thought it was cool and fun, Yeah. but every time I talked to dad about it, he would be like, fuck this, go do something you love. You know what I mean? You don't need to be in this business. You know, he always, there was always a thought in his mind. It was a tough business and it's a different business, you know, and you know, and you were young kids and even when he passed away and you guys wanted to take over the business. It's it's hard because you were nineteen, you know, nineteen, 19. twenty one year old kids, and you're wor- working around uh, old guys who are uh, tough, and they're not especially great guys, to be honest with you. Yeah, you know. Yeah, they, they were, were hustlers. Yeah, and it was it was and tough for you know you and Rob. When Dad passed away, there was somebody in the business who really. Helped you guys out, sat down here in the kitchen and said, this is how your dad did X, Y, and Z, and don't make any deals on your truck until you call me and make sure that these people are not taking advantage of you. Then you're talking about Harvey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is that is a testament because when it comes to business, sharks out there will fucking stomp on you. Even if your dad passes away and his business is wide open, they don't give a damn, most of these guys. They're, nope. They were looking to get the accounts, make the money, and move on. And Harvey came in, yep, and he sat with us. And I remember on that table mm-hmm. laying out all dad's receipts right. and trying to find a pattern. Right. And I wasn't, by any means, any sort of mathematician. But I started to see a pattern in how we were doing business, and we figured it out. And we, you know, Rob came home, and Rob kept my brother kept the business rolling for you know some years. But it was tough, and Rob had my brother's 19 years old, and I I remember when Dad was 
pat dying and I, um, I tell dad I said I'm quitting school I'm quitting college I'm not going back and he was like you're going to school you're finishing school but I kind of felt like he didn't care if I finished school like do you think he cared yes do you yeah he really did want you both of you to finish school just because he never did because he never had the opportunity okay but because I always used to think like because Arizona I became a comedian, writer, director. It wasn't like I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer, but the, I get it. But there was like this moment where my dad was like, you're going back to school. So I went back to school. My brother came home and – hold on one second. Let me just check the time. My brother came home to run the business, and he was 19 years old, and the shit was heavy. And he was dealing with all these fucking 60, 55, 60-year-old dudes who were in the business for 20, 30 years. And they they were like, who's this punk? And Rob had to go to a sit-down in the basement of a place with all those dudes. And Harvey stood up for him and said, this is Sam Young's kid. Do not poach his accounts. Don't, don't fuck with him. And there won't be a problem. And even after that speech, there was still a problem. You know, somebody tried to get dad's account. You know, we had to make a phone call to Didn't somebody. Didn't happen a second time. Yeah. <laughs> My mom's gangster, by the way. She, you did. You made a phone call, you know, to a friend of ours, and they made sure that nobody came after the account. Right. Because in that business, there were no contracts. So you could, you know, somebody could knock on the door and say, hey, you know, Sam passed away and I'm taking over. And that business was only as good as, the person who was picking up the scrapped, scrap. They had there was no regulation. Lo- well, there's no loyalty either. There was no contract, so they they had the right to go wherever they wanted to go. But um, this one person made a big mistake. He never came back again. <laughs> right. Did you know the guy? I knew of him. Right. We won't mention it. It's no, we don't have to mention it. But I'm saying, did he was he at, was he aggressively going after Dad's account, and Rob knew it, and he came basically. Rob came home and said, "This guy is trying to take our account." Yeah, this guy knocked on the door and said, "You know, I'm I'm here, and I'm was told to take over," and he lied. And so somebody had told me if there was a problem, to give them a call, and they would take care of it, and it was taken care of. <laughs> My mom's a mafia princess. No, I'm not. I'm no. just. Yo, don't mess with my children. No, don't mess with us. So Rob came home and he ran it and it was it was stressful. And he I mean, he did a great job. Yeah, I think about that, you know, because I felt like kind of a coward for not coming home. You know what I mean? I did in your senior year of college. I know, but I was I should have in my sometimes I think I should have just dropped out of college. Why? I don't know. Did you need a degree for what I'm doing? No, but did my 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 diploma's in my sock drawer. It's the size of a piece of mail, you know. Like, it's not I, the size I, of the diploma. It's the, you actually. It's did, the motion of it. You actually did learn something in college. Absolutely, and I made the I, I made friends for life. Right. My friends in college: Zach, Bloom, Giddens, you know that whole crew, Stu, Jordy, Buzzy. I mean, we did. I made friends for life, and I did learn a lot in college. If even if it was just how to live on your own. And yeah, how, to, how to do your own laundry was a ma- major feat for you. Major. Brother. Major. <laughs> and, you know, U of A was a blast. But, yeah, Rob. And Rob eventually finished. I think maybe he has one credit to go that drives him bananas. One credit to go. Yeah. He said he's going to do it. He's going to finish. Yeah. But he came, so my brother comes home. He came home for a year. Yeah. A year and a half. Worked in the business. 
got it, just kept it on its feet, kept it rolling. Then we sold it to my uncle and the Which rest. Robert is, taught him the business. Exactly. I still feel like we should have, in perpetuity, should have held that business <laughs> on some level. But anyway, my brother ran it like a man, got it on its feet. Then he comes back to U of A, yeah. and he fucking, my brother is the sickest athlete. Every, every, I'm sure every neighborhood around the country has athletes that you see in your neighborhood that are like next level and could be whatever they want to be, but don't have the drive or the desire. They don't even love the sport necessarily. But my, that's my brother. He was a crazy high-level athlete. Probably, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm pretty much positive, he was the best athlete in our area. He was. You I'm know, sure. Like all my other buddies, they like to talk shit, this and that. There was one other athlete that was similar in style, whatever that was. Jack was a phenomenal athlete. But Rob was, the, he had strength, speed, agility. He could do everything. Excuse me, I got this lingering death cough. Oh my god! Um, but my brother comes to cop back to college. He's in great shape, and one day he wakes me up at school and he's like, "Mike, I'm gonna go out for the football team." Mm -hmm. And I'm like, "What are you talking about? You played for half a season in high school. He played baseball his whole life, hockey his whole life, football. He played for five months. He, I don't barely even remember playing. No, he, he played. played. He played a little. At, and NFL. Yeah, he played I don't for even like half, that. half a year. So a couple of my friends were football players. Rob, for a week or two, starts doing wind sprints and catching the ball, running patterns. I'm throwing the ball to him to run patterns. Long story short, and I think I might have told this before, but whatever. My brother went out and he made the University of Arizona Division I football team. And I was at the tryouts. I watched the shit go down. I could not believe what was happening. Actually, I got my time frame a little messed up. This was not after he came home. This was before he went home. Dad was still around. Right. He, this is before he went home. I but think he told the story about Dad going out on the field and talking to Tony. Yeah, it was my favorite yeah. shit. That that, that 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 epitomized Dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my brother makes the football team. He's a walk-on. Dick Tomey's the coach. You know, nobody nobody Division one coaches they don't know their walk-ons until they get in the game and impress them. But they, uh, uh oh, what's happening in LA? Terror threat at the California rail station? Mm -hmm. Who rides the rail? I never even heard of the rail station. Anyway, the, um, my brother makes the football team. My dad comes to visit U of A. Coach Tommy's in the center of the field, and my dad walks out in the middle of practice and tells Dick, Co Dick Tommy, it's my boy right there, number 26. And Dick Tommy is, you know, real, obviously a nice guy, pretended that he knew who Rob was. <laughs> well, we love that kid. Had no idea who who he was, but it was a <clears throat> it was a hell of a run. It was a hell. Of, U of A was a blast. Rob dropped out after Dad passed away. Went home, ran the business, and uh, you know here we are today. Here we are. Here we beautiful are. Beautiful downtown West Bloomfield. <laughs> downtown West Bloomfield in a I don't even know what you call this neighborhood. Just like a preppy, just a nicer neighborhood. Uh, you know, I think the best thing you and Dad gave us that I think the best thing we learned was watching you and Dad go through three different tax brackets. <laughs> like, I'm serious. From poor to poor to poor. Almost poor. No, but I'm serious. It's like we have three phases of life. Red Leaf Lane, mm -hmm. the first house we grew up in, how many square feet was that house? 900. 900 square feet. Mm -hmm. No basement, no garage. No basement, no garage. Great a drive, 
Amazing house. Great Loved neighborhood. it. neighborhood. Awesome neighborhood. Great neighbors. But it was the uh, just a tiny little house. Right. And again, we had the as much fun as you could have. We loved our neighbors. Yeah, we had two big cardboard boxes on the front lawn. They were like um, our refrigerator boxes that we played in. And that's what we right. All we needed as kids was either it, it snowed and we made a fort, right, or a refrigerator box and we pretended it was a house, right. And when our backyard flooded, it became an ice rink. That's right. We made the ice rink in the backyard because it was a big backyard, and we'd make an ice rink and we'd skate back there. Yeah. So we were, you know, it was a tiny house. And then I remember when we moved to we moved to Glenmora to uh-huh. a nicer neighborhood, you know, boom, all of a sudden we had an upstairs. I remember Rob and I, like the first day we moved, I remember Rob and I were like enamored with an upstairs <laughs> and a basement. We're like, right. what the fuck is going on here? There's a basement. And there was like, I feel like there was wood floor in the living room. St- in all, that. There was all wood floors in the whole house. So, Ro- so to Rob and I, we're like, oh shit, we can stick handle and we can play hockey. We you can play football. Skate across. You wore out more pa- pairs of socks than anybody I know. Yeah. But we had a damn good, damn good, damn fun childhood in that house. We had a, and we had that was a great house. 40 kids on the street. We lived in a cul-de-sac. And the street went cul-de-sac to cul-de-sac with a dividing thoroughfare, just one street in the middle. And there was literally 30 kids on that one street. There was 30 kids on every street. So many kids, it was great. And our neighborhood. They all play together. It doesn't matter how old you were, how young you were, if you're girls or boys or whatever. You know, you get guys would play flashlight tag. They would play, be up all, you know, you'd be gone all, all day long. All day long. You know, in the summer times they had um, par- parks and recreation. They had at Leonard School and you had those, um, oh, what was it? Like like little Yeah, Olympics. parks and rec. Yeah. Junior yeah. Olympics. Ju- junior Olympics between all the schools. It was so much fun. There were 500 kids in the competition from every school. So our Parks and Rec was at Leonard, and we had Letterly, Levy, Thompson, all the schools in the in the Detroit metro area. Not Detroit, had the, it was Southfield. No, no, but there was, I think they, didn't they have Detroit schools in the Junior Olympics? That's what I remember, but maybe. Not. I don't know, but it was a huge thing. My, my competition was the softball throw <laughs> every year. I just like seeing my name in the paper. Of course, I came in second place, but I came in first place in the, uh, and Rob came in, my brother came in first place in (laughs) chin-ups. Rob was a monkey. He was a crazy, strong little kid. He could do, like, my brother could do, like, 50 chin-ups, pull-ups as a kid. Like, he literally was, like, built like a little baby Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, he was crazy, crazy strong. I remember at Oak Park Park, he would hang... he one time climbed up the monkey bars and was hanging by one arm on the top of the monkey bars. And he was little. He was probably two or three. I remember he'd go, help, help. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, no, we had, uh, we had no fear as kids. And, uh, yeah, so you made, it. You made me, Ma. You Lucky made me. duck. Thanks for making me. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks I think. for raising me. <laughs> I think it is a test, but raise your kids strict. I think you were strict. I was strict. Because if you weren't, I'd be in jail because we were wild anyway. But you you wake up one day if you have good parents. One day you just wake up and you go, you say to yourself, why the fuck am I putting my parents through this? And I literally remember I woke up from all of it one day. I was doing 
I, you know, I was just doing dumb shit. Me and Jeff were out stealing, doing stupid kid things. But I remember in my mind, I was angry at the world for all the death that happened. Aunt Lily and everybody. I truly remember the thought that I had, and it was, F the world. I don't care. You know, this is how it's going to be. Right. I'm going to do what I want. I was a re- I had a rebellious hair, and I was stealing and doing all this shit. And I remember you and Dad just were fed up with me at some point. And I remember one day, I just like... Me and dad had it out. We just, we cried it out. <laughs> and I swear to God that, that it was like a one day thing. And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, why the hell would I put my parents through the shit that I put them through? They're worrying about us every night. You know what I mean? We're not, I'm not being a good kid. All they do is feed me, clothe me and make sure I'm safe. And I just woke up one day and you know, you well, hope. nice ho- to hear. I'm glad you finally woke up. Yeah, no, I woke <laughs> up because otherwise I wasn't going to wake up. And dad had had enough with me. He, dad and I, you know, I think teenage boys have a phase, boys have a phase, you know, with with their dads. It's like a known thing in sociology class. They go through a battle, you know, right. and there was one battle. And I remember I was boxing, you know, I remember I was, took, took I took boxing when I was young and I boxed my whole life. But I remember telling dad, and he was so excited to box me because I was like, dad, I'm learning boxing. And he's like, oh, okay, good, good. Go get the gloves. You want to go on the front lawn and <laughs> let's see what you learn. And I remember I truly boxed dad on the front lawn and he just started whooping the shit out of me with no real boxing technique he right. just was hammer punching me and uh i ducked down and he hit his nose on my head <laughs> and my thought i was thinking like god dad dad's really aggressively trying to whoop the shit out of me because he got close enough to hit me with his nose on the head he had a hard nose but you know in the end it's all love and uh yeah wow ma we talked for an hour oh my god this has been a one hour podcast and it could keep going you know, I just, I see that last bar of battery and I do not want this to cut off again. But <coughs> we can keep this as phase one okay. of me and you. And Next time you come home, we'll do it again. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it again. And tonight I'll probably podcast with Rob. And I want to see this dude. So I got home and uh, in Detroit, I'm still here and they want me to write content. I told you for the, mo- like a, a Detroit underworld museum. Right. So I'm going to go meet with this dude, uh, Scott Bernstein, who is, he, he basically, he, he's writing the white boy Rick story and white boy Rick was the, you remember drug yeah. dealer in Detroit. He's, he's, he's still in prison, got life sentence for a non, nonviolent drug offense. And Matthew McConaughey is going to be playing his dad. And Scott Bernstein's a crime historian. He's And he's awesome. His stuff is great online. I read it all the time. So I'm going to go have lunch with him because I'm going to do this mob museum thing. And he's going he's gonna to help me out with it. And uh, we're going to talk underworld. Anyway, Mike Young, stories that need to be told. Say bye, Mom. Bye. It was most fun. <laughs> right? We had good yeah, Are you proud fun. of me? I'm super proud of you. Am I doing okay? You're doing great. She wants me to get married and settle down. It's hard. I don't don't, care if you settle. I don't care if you get married. Just settle down. I need to settle down. You don't have to get married in this stage again. Right. I've been having a wild. It's been a wild run. It's time to settle down. Even my nephews are on me about it. I mean, seriously. (laughs) That's another podcast. I blame Leo for that. It's Leo's fault. Yeah. I blame all my famous. I blame my famous friends for having a wild 15 year run. Of not settling down, but you're right. It's time. It's time like, to find a nice woman. Me and my nephews, 
you know, every time we get together, we're like, what, what's our next discipline? We try to put a discipline on each, you know, on, on it. So, like, I quit ice cream and candy <laughs> for, like, three months. They quit, you know, Cameron, he tried to be held. They all, we all did something. But yesterday, Ian's like, Uncle Mike, you can only see two women in a year. That's your discipline. I'm thinking, you know what? That's not a bad discipline to attempt. Maybe one would even be, that'd be a miracle. That would be a miracle from that'd be, God. That'd be a miracle. No. But we'll uh, don't get that, crazy. No, that's that's another podcast. Mike Young stories that need to be told. My mom, Gail, signing off. I'm glad you got to do this, Ma. Me Tom- too. Tomorrow I'm in Phoenix. I'm at Stand Up Live this weekend, which will be December eighth uh, or 9, 10, 11, 12. Me and Bob Saget. So if you're in the area, get out and uh, find me on Twitter at Real Mike Young, and keep coming back to stories that need to be told. Peace. Talk to you later from Detroit.